Okay, folks, Yanagusdala, Yanagusdala podcast. You're hearing two-thirds of the family here because my daughter is just going down for a nap or rather refusing to do so. I'm going to mute that and just keep her on the monitor here uh, in the background. I am I'm at that point where I'm just sort of having to crush everything into uh, what feels like a, an ever-decreasing amount of time. And one of the things that I needed to need to test, and I'm doing so right here, right now, let's see how successful or not this was for an episode of the podcast. Have I vastly overcommitted myself to, uh, to do something that I will never be able to take myself out for, from in terms of quality? But uh, I just picked up the new DJI, not sponsored by the way, wish they were, the new DJI mic system, this wireless lav mic. So I'm intrigued because I want to go and do interviews on the podcast remotely and have a very clean setup when I do that. Very easy to carry around. It's this little um, charging case, 15 hours of record time, two wireless receivers, a transmitter. It's one one wireless receiver and two transmitters. Perfect for a two-person interview setup. Let's see. You're not going to get that crispy direct sound of the bass. But, um, and I have to pull up some information here because what I want to share with you is sort of a rundown of the last few moments of preparation here before we go to Argentina in just, when is this coming out? Monday and we're leaving Thursday. Um, so this is, it's no joke. We're in the last, we're in the last seconds of prep here. Uh, and I got the base set up for the first time, I think, since it was made. I think that's what was happening here. I think that's why the intonation was so uh, out of whack and just the, the instrument was just totally toasted. Took it to this, uh, this cat, a new cat I met, Ryan Gleason, did some amazing work on it here in LA, squeezed me in at the last second and knocked it out within 24 hours. Uh, also not a sponsor of the podcast. I paid for all the work, um, but I can absolutely uh, recommend uh, taking your stuff to him if you're in LA. Not sure if he does stuff remotely, if people send it in. I don't know how that works, but definitely as an LA guy, it's a totally different instrument to play. I think I have, yeah, I think I'm in tune. Maybe I have to give it a little more volume in the room. Just so you can hear it on the lav mic. I'm curious about that as well. I'm sitting very close to my amp, just a couple of feet away. I don't want to blast it because trying to get the little one down to sleep. But but actually being able to play chords like that and have them be in tune, which they have not been for so long on this instrument, is uh, it's, it's just awesome. It gives me like a, a nice little confidence boost in terms of playing the melodic stuff, the stuff up the dusty end of the neck, as I like to call it. And since talking about the Patatucci story and having this this whole kind of epiphany moment and much like going from carrying the bass on the plane to checking it all the time uh, I had that moment with action with Patatucci and I've, I've told the story too many times before so I'm not going to tell, tell it again but basically I changed my action to be really quite um, high I don't know in terms of the grand scheme of things whether that's actually that high I'm sure there are people with high, much higher action than me uh, but it's definitely it's significantly higher than, than how I used to have it, where I could barely fit a Rizzler or a cigarette paper underneath the strings. It was that micro light action, which gave me almost no uh, options, no vibe, no dynamics. And that's why I did it. That's why I raised the action up. 
it's a it's a completely different world i'm orbiting in a different solar system in terms of what i'm able to do with the instrument and the range i'm able to get out of it um so because of that and i've talked about that on and off over the past few years since doing that i don't know six seven years ago whenever it was maybe even longer now uh, everyone is always asking me do so what is the action and somewhere around here maybe is it in my drawer here i don't think so maybe it's over by the workbench somewhere i do have a little measuring tool like that diodaria little metal plate the measuring tool and i should actually be able to measure all that stuff myself and tell you but uh ryan was kind enough to uh share all the technical information um once once he had made all the adjustments and that is as follows for all the nerds out there who want to know exactly what so what is high action or what do i consider to be high action more specifically what is my action so I'm going to read it off. I don't understand any of this. I know their measurements. I basically understand the fact that there are millimeters and, and fractions of a millimeter going on. Um, bah, 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 bah. Although they, I think this is in inches, actually. So the action is 8 sixty-fourths to 7 sixty-fourths of an inch action at the 12th fret. Okay, maybe that is going to mean something to people out there, technically speaking. Uh, relief, 0.12 inches at the 7th fret. And string spacing at the bridge, which I knew already because that was very specific for my instrument, 16.5 millimeters. So that's my setup. Finally, um, it is revealed uh, because I had an expert actually take a look at it and, and take the time to write those things down and then text them to me after the work was done. So for all the, for all the nerds out there and... And the literally thousands of times I've been asked that question in over the years now, now you know. Um, we'll probably have to call this this uh, this episode of the podcast like revealing my string height or something like that because it it literally is. It's actually technically revealing it to me, although I know what it is because I play it every day. Um, and visually, I don't know. I can hold it up to the camera or give you that look down the down the neck here. That was always the one people used to go bonkers about on Instagram. They're like, oh, man, what is that? Like, because it is quite significant. When you, when you see the amount of daylight, you can see half my neck through there, my actual neck, not the neck of the base, when you look between the E string and the neck. So it is, it is quite high. I remember seeing Gary Willis at the last NAMM show I went to some years ago now, three or four years ago, and uh, he said he had seen a clip on Instagram. He's like, I don't know how you play with the action that high, man. Um, so yeah, everyone has their thing. And I know Gary's quite technical. Uh, well, he's very technically minded. He knows all about that stuff, the physics of it all, and has his preference and his style, obviously. And I think we play very different right-hand technique styles and different amp settings and, and all of that. We just have quite a different approach. I think Gary's maybe the only one out there that I've heard that makes the the low string action work. Um, and I think it's because he has such a different approach with the right, actually with both hands, but really I think a lot to do with the right hand technique. And yeah, he's, to me, he's a very dynamic player and a huge range. And plus it's fretless as well, which is a totally different thing. So there are a lot of differences there, but I think to my ear, he's one of the only people who makes that crazy low action really work. Uh, in terms of the dynamic of the dynamic range, so we get to today, and what I can share with you, I'm not going to go through a bunch of more demos. Um, I'm kind of taking away the mystery a little bit by by playing so many of the demos. It's been really fun to share them. I got to say, uh, 
but I need to, um, first of all, more than anything, I need to work on some really basic stuff, some, some fundamental stuff and stuff that I need absolute confidence in playing, in my ability to play when, when those moments arrive in the song. Um, specifically this kind of, let's see how our volume is here. Oh, just hearing the tempo of this is giving me a little bit of anxiety because it's not, it's not slow, let's put it that way. So I'm just playing a little bit of the demo here. Uh, this is what I've sent to the guys, to Cliff and Tom. Um, I also sent it to Juan Pablo, my engineer, just so he could laugh at us and uh, be like, <laughs> well, good luck with that. And basically, um, and I'll put a little bit of this in the documentary, I think, um, when I get to editing. I found a clip from, I think it's 2000 or 2001, where I was playing a week at Sweet Basil with, uh, with Hiram Bullock and Kenwood Denard and a bunch of cats, Lou Soloff and Casey Benjamin and uh, Raymond Angry and Randy Brecker, Chris Hunter, I think the Mason Brothers played on that way. It was a crazy week of, of music playing with a lot of my heroes and really kind of, obviously early on I was like 22, maybe 23, something like that. And that was definitely a big moment, a big, a nice early moment of, uh, of learning and of experience and something I look back on with, with great fondness and still carry kind of many elements of that with me today. Stuff I learned just in that one week of, uh, of gigs. I play with Hiram and actually a lot of those guys over the years, much more. But that was really like experiencing so many people on a high level in one place. We're kind of getting a little bit off track here because all of that to say, at that gig, Hiram would let me play completely solo. He let me walk out the front and play completely solo for a few minutes in the middle of the show, which at the time was just like, oh yeah, cool, great, because everyone was doing it. When I look back, I'm like, ah, that was actually really taking a risk and that was giving me a, a chance and really helping me in a big way, like letting me experience a hardcore New York audience who had come to see all these legends and being like the kid, easily, easily the youngest guy in the band by a decade, if not more. I think probably me and Raymond Angry are about 10 years apart, if I had to guess. Maybe a little less, I'll have to check that out. But by far, I was the youngest guy in the band and, and the bass player as well. Not, not normally known as like the soloist to go stand out front. And this is long before I owned a loop pedal and did any of really of the things that I do now. But at that moment, I did start working on this exact shape that I'm that I've written into this song and it's it was kind of a practice idea that stemmed from the augmented triad so here in C C E and G sharp and doing the playing the augmented triad in minor thirds so C C E G sharp um, E flat G D, uh, B, sorry, B natural, and then F sharp, A sharp or B flat, D natural, and then A, C sharp, F. So those are sort of the root notes, the root motion. So that's how it started out. That's how the exercise started out because I would think I was doing... Uh, just playing major pentatonic. One, two, one, two, three, five, one, two, three, five, one, two, three, five. Just based, ar just based around those triads. 
and then I expanded it into so whoops so the shape of one five nine so root fifth nine and then on each of the chord tones of the of the augmented triad I like I like that sound. I was really starting to get attached to that sound, that one five nine sound, and then the angular element of moving it through augmented triads. And then I was like, well, I, I think I'd heard like some sort of randomizer arpeggiator on a keyboard in the studio on a session, or maybe with JoJo or something like that. Maybe Takuya had had a, a weird patch. Something I'd been around something that sort of sounded kind of kind of random and arpeggiated and very synth-like and, and I really wanted to try and recreate that or just even know if I could. Not that it was particularly useful, um, but at that moment, at that, that time period where I was practicing this shape a lot, I ended up using it in, a, in, a, in an improvisation on the gig with Hiram and I have video footage of this. Even back then, 23, 22, 23 years ago, I, the, the camera was rolling all the time. So I have some video footage of that. I want to throw it in uh, potentially into the documentary just to say like, oh, fuck, this tiny fragment that was a practice idea from 22 years ago resurfaced right now and sounds like this. So it's not completely randomized, um, but it is, instead of being 159159159. So even that sounds, it sounds arpeggiated, sounds almost synth-like, especially when you're palm muting. Ah. But now when you kind of change the pattern, Uh, that is what you get. That's the sound you get. And of course, I've programmed it in the in the demo here um, with a synth sound, and we'll probably play along to that synth sound in the studio as we build up the track and produce the song. Uh, but it is something I want to be able to play along with with the natural sound of the bass and have that extra extra sonic element to it. So that's what I'm working on right now. I've been sort of getting more into it the past few days because I know it's like going to be a pressure moment. It's really not an easy thing to play. And in the midst of everything, it's not just going to be, okay, here are the 12 bars where I need to play that. It's going to be, okay, number one on the artist. It's all on my dime. It's like the pressure's on in terms of I'm, I'm producing the day. I brought all these people from around the world. There are so many like external things besides the performance that the performance element has to be completely unconscious in a way um, and totally second nature. So that's what I'm working on. That's my, that's my process for, for getting this, for building confidence in this idea. And of course that bleeds into everything else. When, I'm, when, when I find the most difficult thing I think I might possibly have to play in the entire week, at least the most challenging thing that's, co that's composed, the most challenging thing I'm going in there with, with a preconceived idea of what it might possibly sound like, you know, that's not counting any of the improvisational things, the ideas I might hear in the moment and try and play and have a, you know, a better chance of executing some than others, let's see. But in terms of the compositional material, what I'm taking there, 
this is the, the, the very hardest thing I have to play. So when that is under my fingers, it's totally natural, then everything else starts to get a little bit easier, at least psychologically speaking. It's, it's all tough. It's all tough, even, the, even the, 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 like I have a really slow tune. In fact, I think I programmed it at 74 BPM, but we're gonna wind it all the way down to about 60. I don't know what tempo that is. I'm curious to know where I naturally went to right there. Whoa, 61. Uh, I gotta turn the volume up. Yes, turn the volume up so people can hear that. Wow, and even that feels a little fast. Interesting. And there's 60, uh, two, three, and a one, two. Yeah, so I think we definitely wind that down to 60. So that's what you might consider one of the easier pieces to play. Um, we're just talking about spread triads, basically. That's all it is. And actually that's in the piano part. I'm not, not probably not gonna play, maybe in one section I'll play it as a breakdown, but for the most part of the song, I'm playing, I'm playing root notes and, and, and just a bass part. Talking about the, the high end of the technical stuff that I have to work on, bleeding into the confidence in the rest of it, there's a huge element of that. When you're confident about the thing that you're most worried about, um, the other less technically demanding things become a little easier. That's not to say you can't lose sight of the really simple stuff, because I think the more space there is, the slower the tempo, you really, like I'm pushing a whole different set of challenges. Like, um, it's, it's a whole different lane of challenges when it comes to that and not being tempted to fill the space with information, being okay with the space, being able to feel the space, play the space and be honest and convincing with it as well, like go in there with the right intent. So I'm sort of all over the map a little bit here in terms of my explanation. I'm very aware of that. If you're sitting there scratching your head thinking, well, hang on a second, where the fuck is he going with all of this stuff? I do understand I'm a little bit all over the map, but hopefully there's some sort of common thread in there that the bottom line is the preparation is, is huge. Um, there's, no, there's no way around it. Like I couldn't possibly go there expecting success with, with close to no preparation at all. And when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to figuring out what is enough, I don't think I really know. Um, pro it's probably never enough. And, the situation for the most part, it might flatline. You might get to a plateau at some point um, if you really prepare for like months and months at a time. But in terms of the hours per day in the two to three weeks leading up to the session, I'm not sure I personally can hit much of a plateau. I think the chance of success of the recording will only get greater the more work I'm able to put in 
each day, you know, and that has meant uh, quite a drastic shift in lifestyle, even just in the past few days, the, the past week or so, because there's so much going on at home. And I know there are a ton of people out there in the same situation with kids and other commitments besides music. I just have to be like, I'm a pretty productive person anyway, but I had to take it really to a whole other level in terms of let's set the alarm an hour earlier. Uh, let's get out of bed and do the run two, three miles in the morning um, before anyone else is awake in the household, before the dog even needs to go out. And that's, the dog, he's, a <laughs> he's an early morning kiddo. And uh, even uh, also the kiddo we have is, is an early morning kiddo. Normally she's up at 7.45. So I'm setting the alarm 6.45, 7 a.m. And really kickstarting my body and my system and my health and my nutrition and all that stuff early. So I have... So it's all fired up for later on in the day. So I'm not getting that kind of dip in energy or I'm not feeling like here, and this is probably more important um, sort of psychologically and mentally, I'm not feeling like I'm sacrificing either thing as much. You know, if I don't do all of that before the whole daycare run and breakfast with the kiddo and, and all that stuff that is like a given in the morning, walking the dog, that sort of hour to hour and 15 minutes of nonstop, you know, changing diapers, getting dressed, breakfast, walking the dog, feed the dog, feed the cat, like all that stuff, get out the door, get in the car, take, the, take my daughter to daycare. If I, if I do all that, if that's the first thing I do, which it normally is, don't get me wrong, this is a very recent change in order to squeeze more out of my day. If that's the first thing I do, by the time I get to like 12 or one o'clock, of course I want some lunch, and it's like, shit, I got to wait an hour if I want to exercise. And then if I got lunch later than I normally do at 1 or 1.30, one then it's 2 or 2.30. And I'm like, shit, I still haven't done this, 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 and this in terms of music. So the exercise gets pushed back. And the whole thing sort of gets in a little bit of a, of a shallow downward spiral that's kind of hard to recover from. And you feel like if you're, at least I do, I feel like if I'm, I don't want to speak for anyone out there, but perhaps you can relate. I feel like if I am neglecting one, you know, if I'm neglecting the fitness thing, then I'm also not as awake and alert and feeling good about doing the music thing and, and vice versa. If I feel like I've neglected the music thing and I've gone and done an extra half an hour of, of exercise or I've run a mile longer than I normally do, I'm like, shit, well, I really need to practice this line. And am I really going to have enough confidence to play it in the studio next week when I get in there? So it's the, const the two main things aside from the family um, that are constantly sort of fighting for attention are health, fitness, nutrition, hydration, and then work, basically. And of course, like, there are so many things that fall under the work banner. You know, the, the, the podcast, for instance, what I'm doing right now, it's a Sunday. Normally, see, here's another change. Normally, I'm waiting till my daughter goes to bed on a Sunday evening. That can be 8, 8.15, 8.30. Then I'm like, fuck, it's the end of the day and I'm exhausted. I finally get down the studio. I have 15 emails I have to reply to. Uh, oh damn, I didn't do a, a chart for this one song for the session. So I do, and then come 9.30, I'm like, shit, now I've got to you know, cut the podcast. I've got to uh, film a podcast, record a podcast. 9.30, 10.30. So when 10.30 rolls around on a Sunday and I've only filmed and I've got an hour, I don't edit it that much, obviously, but it still takes time. I've got to edit it. I've got to make the thumbnail for YouTube. I've got to make the thumbnail for the audio version. I've got to uh, render it all and then I've got to upload it and I've got to set all the parameters and write the description and the all that stuff. Sundays are, can be kind of rough like that. So today it's, uh, what is it, middle of the day here, two o'clock. Um, my daughter is mercifully 
staying asleep. She got down and she's staying asleep. She's been down for what, 20 minutes. Everything looking good on that front. So here I am, I'm, I'm able to like change my approach and film it during the day. I might even be able to get a little bit of the editing or maybe do the thumbnail before she wakes up. So by the time Sunday evening comes around tonight, I'm not like scrambling or even not even scrambling, but not dreading the, oh man, I got three and a half hours now of non-stop work to get this thing out on time by Monday morning. So definitely uh, it, it doesn't take much to change in terms of what, what I have to do physically. I'm basically, it's a reshuffling of the time. Um, but mentally, I think it's a huge, uh, huge ask on the body, on the brain, in terms of just, you know, I've literally just said, I think three days ago, I said, All right, fuck it, that's it. I'm changing today. And I just set the alarm early and I went out and did the run and got on this different trajectory. I'm kind of a little psychotic like that. I can say, now's the time and bam, three, two, one, go. Tres, dos, uno, vamos. That's, that's kind of my approach. I know that doesn't work for everyone. Maybe that doesn't even work for most people. And I understand that when you're trying to make a shift like that, no matter what it is, I think, in your life, for me, it's just a little work thing. And I'm trying to reset my jet lag. So even with a four-hour time difference in Buenos Aires, I'm pretty much going to be on schedule the earlier I can wake up here in California the week preceding my, um, preceding my trip. That's another useful byproduct of shifting my thing now is that I'm helping my jet lag situation next week when I get to South America. Um, but yeah, in general, it's a, it's a big ask just to say, okay, today I'm going to do it completely differently and totally change, you know, my, my outlook on life almost. And that doesn't account for all kinds of things like getting sick or having an injury or just an unexpected miscellaneous task coming up. Like, Last week, for instance, it was there was a couple of vets runs that I hadn't anticipated with the dog and just little things like that that can come up out of nowhere that completely knock you off path, which is even more of an argument for doing something physical early on in the morning, I think. And I've always known this and I used to be like that a lot. I used to be, my alarm was 5.45 a.m. every day. I'd be at bed at 10 and the alarm was 5.45. Um, and in bed at 10 doesn't mean going to sleep by 10. It was probably in bed and reading um, at 10 for 45 minutes and then getting roughly seven hours sleep, sometimes less. I wasn't great about my sleep before. And lo and behold, this podcast has turned into a whole health and fitness episode. But it's, I think it's important no matter what you're doing, whether you're going to South America next week to make a new album or whether you're just literally trying to get through your week and get through your day and feel good about yourself at, at the end of it. Um, and that's what is happening this week. I feel great. I feel like I have way more energy, um, and I've been able to accomplish a ton more in the last four or five days just by making the three or four. I can't remember how many days I've been doing the early morning thing now. But it's been, yeah, and it's, it, it's forced me a little bit because I'm just tired at that moment to go to bed at 11. If I want to be up by 7, um, that's easy. I don't think I need eight hours of sleep a night. I think 7 is more of a sweet spot. Of course, that's going to be individual. I'm not a doctor or a scientist, so don't take my bullshit. I'm just talking about anecdotally speaking, that's how, that's what works for me. And maybe it's something you want to try also because you kind of don't know until you try, right? That's always the, that's always the vibe. So I'm trying it. It's working a lot better. I'm finding I'm getting way more out of my day and I'm able to, this, this definitely wasn't this smooth three days ago. And what I'm gauging it on is 
as long as I'm okay and I'm warmed up and I feel good when I pick up the instrument, I'm picking up the instrument, I'm playing that idea a few times for the first time each day. So I'm slow, just making sure all the notes are in the right place. And then I'm going to song tempo, uh, which actually off the top of my head, I don't know what that tempo is. As you heard in the demo, it's not slow. Um, have, I, have I shared that one actually before? I don't know. But that's, that's kind of the vibe of that one. And the synth parts that you hear are just a placeholder. Who knows what sounds we're going to end up on. Um, I know I sent that to Tom, my piano player, Tom Corley, and he said, yeah, I can play that. He's like, I can't play the bass at the same time because I need two hands for the line. I was like, okay, fair enough. I've, the, the, more, the deeper I get into the demoing process and the more realistic I am about the sounds I'm going for and the level of production on this album that I'm going for, it's, it's not going to be 100%, it's just not going to be possible to make it 100% live. Like we can't get all the information onto the take as a trio that I want to eventually hear as a production, as a, as a finished thing. So it's going to be, it's an interesting approach, dip for me anyway, a different approach to doing it. Um, I think we're going to be, there are going to be some songs that we are able to do live as a trio, but for at least 60% of it, we're going to be doing rhythm section tracks, kind of old school song production uh, uh, workflow. So we'll do rhythm section tracks, then there'll be synth things and maybe bass doubling things and I'm thinking ahead, do I want to put some choir stuff on when I get back to Los Angeles? Do I want to have a couple of special guests here and there? The, the more I write, the more space there could possibly be for that. I called Mark Letary the other day, for instance, great guitar player with Snarky Puppy, because uh, I, I heard him potentially on something. And I just said, hey, I know you're coming to town with Snarky in September. Would you have a couple of hours to potentially play on a track? And it wasn't like, hey, I'm hiring you for the record. It was I think I might be hearing you on one song, you know? So there are little moments like that. And who knows, after the sessions, maybe he's not the right guy or maybe guitar isn't the right instrument. But I'm sort of starting to leave myself open to a few more ideas like that. And while I have access to um, these amazing musicians and a lot of them happen to be friends of mine, I definitely want to take advantage of that. And when I can hire friends and, and give them work, that's always a great thing also. So that's kind of on my mind the closer we get to the studio time and Cliff being so close with Wayne Krantz and me having played with Wayne Krantz in the past there's maybe a potential for a guitar thing with Wayne I don't know um, there, there could be little things like that I'm hearing vocal things here and there uh, you will have heard in last week's episode my terrible Richard Boner impersonation where I was seeing some vocals with the melody in one tune not sure I'm definitely not hearing my vocals on it maybe Richard I'm not sure but those kind of things are floating around I also have to make sure I don't get ahead of myself and let those things cloud the initial tracking sessions. That would be, uh, that would be a problem, shall we say, because <laughs> I don't want to let that get in the way of what we're doing organically as a trio. Um, but those are all the things floating around. Those are things I have to keep, uh, keep track of, keep, uh, keep an eye on. 
Yeah, and all, like all things, like literally trying out this DJI mic setup uh, for the podcast today, because I would quite like for the conversation in the studio to drive the narrative of the film we're putting together that goes with the album. And I think having some, some good audio, some close mic'd uh, elements of the conversation will, will probably help that. And I'll, maybe I'll have it on me. Uh, for a day and put one on Tom for a day. I, I want to leave one wirelessly in the control room so we get all the conversations back and forth. Obviously, the cameras that are moving around are going to have shotgun mics on them. So really going for a higher-end audio production, as high-end as we possibly can. And it, it just seemed to make sense to get this DJI uh, mic thing for myself, not have the not rent it down there or have the film crew. The film crew didn't have this setup. I was always curious about it. Not crazy expensive. Again, they're not a sponsor. Wish they were. Uh, not crazy expensive, but it's also not free. But just conceptually, that it rolls around in this case that fits in the palm of my hand. It's half the size of my iPhone, and that fits a transmitter, two transmitters, one receiver, and it has 15 hours of life and internal recording. Amazing iPhone hookup. So you could shoot, not that I have social media anymore, but you could shoot like little uh, Instagram reels and stuff with really nice quality audio. So I'm very psyched to hear that. Um, maybe I'll be over, overlaying sad emojis when I, <laughs> in the episode right now, having found out that it was totally pants. But no, I'm, I'm, I did a lot of research, heard a lot of things I liked, and when I'm able to extract that audio or just have that audio separately and mix it in Logic, I have great... Uh, confidence that we'll be able to make it work and for doing um, interviews on the road ah, it's going to be awesome not having to carry this like this whole thing you know the road um, which I love I mean the, the SM7B in the studio is just a badass podcasting mic you've seen them on all your favorite podcasts that's why I have two of them here so if we're doing stuff at home no brainer I'll use that studio stuff but for on the road going to be interesting Got to see how these mics pick up ambient sound as well. Could be interesting to put one of these things at the back of a club to get crowd noise on a live recording, even if it's just for a YouTube video or something. Um, I have, uh, I'm being optimistic about our live show down in Buenos Aires as well. We play August 5th, um, Dumont 4040, I believe is the name of the venue. Um, anyone down there in Argentina in Buenos Aires. I hope you will make it out. Um, links are, you know, yannickwistada.com for ticket links. I'm also giving a clinic at Nempla Music uh, School, uh, 12 noon, 12 o'clock on the 5th. Um, it's going to be a busy day for me. Day two there is going to be a super busy day. And then we're four days in the studio. I'm like really, in case you can't tell <laughs> my voice, the rapid clip of how I'm talking and trying to deliver information to you guys right now. I'm pretty excited about this. Um, and the pre-sale obviously is still open. Uh, also linked below if you're watching on YouTube or in the show notes. And that's been going fantastic. So thank you guys for that. Uh, Yeah. <laughs>
Oh, it's so nice to have that part of the instrument be in tune and intonated well. I will link to, uh, to Ryan Gleason. I believe he has a website or Instagram, something like that. I'll link to his information, the tech who set up my stuff. I'll link to him in the, in the description below the YouTube video or in the show notes as well. Check him out. Uh, what am I doing? Oh, come on. Very nice. And I'm happy. I'm happy it worked out that I could get this instrument playable to the point where that's just yet another thing that gives me like just massive confidence going into the going into the sessions. Um, also, another thing. I'm going to take the bass off now. Uh, Another thing I've been thinking about is like the human element of the whole thing, uh, making sure we sort of, I mean, self-care sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit 2023 and YouTube self-help guru bullshit, but there's an element of remembering that we are, uh, we're not just musicians going down there to slog it out and do this really difficult job and play this complex music at times. Um, we also need to be like, conscious of the fact that we should sleep we should eat the right way and sleep well and get exercise and do all of those things i think that's one of the big luxuries of having four days to record and like six days total even six and a half days once you know we don't fly out until the evening of the last day so having six and a half days total in a place especially when it's as far away as literally the other side of the world in argentina is a huge a benefit and a, and a massive plus to doing the recording this way and yeah every every one of these i do every time i tra- just every time i travel is just more good information and feedback as to how it works and what worked here what didn't how you can improve the next time and i think especially last year in spain having everyone staying in the same place was really fun and just made it so easy to work when we wanted to work um, of course, the band is going to be staying in a house down there, um, and I made sure, sort of logistically, that we're really not that far from anywhere we need to go. So it's kind of loose and relaxed. And if it's like, oh well, today not really feeling it at ten, let's go at eleven. Or if it's like, oh, it's five o'clock and we were going to go until eight, but we're kind of done, let's go eat. I, I want those options. I don't want to be strict and rigid and da 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 da. It's really nice to be relaxed. And uh, hopefully that is what comes across in, in, the, in the finished product. Talked a little bit about the overall concept of recording uh, in the past months. Um, I have a, a, a video about Spotify percolating in my brain right now. Because as many of you are aware, I'm like hugely against Spotify. I, I waited a really long time before putting the last album on Spotify. That was part of the whole thing about pre-sale and you know, bringing value back to the music um, because Spotify simply doesn't pay uh, the artist anything close to what uh, what we're worth and what the music is worth. And yeah, it's, it's kind of upside down in terms of the revenue. But I, I want to find a way to reverse that because I think Spotify is has probably has been for quite a while, but the more I look at booking shows and, and building an audience... 
Spotify is becoming more of a metric uh, for artists to use. Well, more importantly, for promoters and for booking agents to use. Like, how many monthly listeners do you have? How many streams do you have on a song or on an album? Like, how popular how popular are you in certain areas, certain markets? All of those things can actually be found out via Spotify now. And especially with the artist pages, I can actually tell where all of my streams are coming from and who's listening and how much and when and all, all of those things. And when I look at the relatively low number uh, of monthly listeners on Spotify, granted, I know everyone's not a Spotify listener. Uh, a lot of people prefer Apple Music or Bandcamp or any other, you know, any number of other things. When I look at the relatively low number of monthly listeners on my Spotify page, for instance, um, I happen to know there are way more fans than that around the world. And a way for you guys as fans to let, you know, people who like kind of gatekeepers, promoters, club owners, that kind of thing, know that, yeah, actually there is, a, there is an audience out there. One of the ways to help that is simply by listening to the music for free on Spotify. Now, that may sound counterintuitive, like, hey, I'm putting all this time and effort into it and I'm trying to put value back into the music, but could you please go listen to it for absolutely nothing on this streaming service? Um, I can't really... Uh, ignore the fact that there is some value to that for me at the end of the day. It's not something that's promoted by Spotify. It's not something that people are really that aware about, aware of, it seems. But in terms of building an audience and having that as a very visible, like, hey, there are 40,000, not 5,000, but 40,000 monthly listeners. There are 100,000 monthly listeners, 250,000 monthly listeners. Those numbers are not uh, impossible to, uh, to, to acquire on Spotify. And I think there's some value to that. Speaking from an independent artist, uh, you know, having booked myself for so many years and may well again, I don't know, um, depends how much time I have, but there seems to be some value in that. And I'd like to turn basically the piss take that Spotify are towards musicians. I'd like to sort of turn that on its head while we still can before they change any of those things and sort of get some value out of it while it's there to be had. And for independent musicians, I think that is something we could we could perhaps change. And by following an artist, like, you know, if you go to my Spotify page and follow me on there, and if you are an active monthly listener or you add the songs to playlists of, uh, you know, for certain moods or certain things that you want to listen to at different periods in your life, different periods in your week even, uh, that can be a huge help even though I'm not actually making any money from it, anywhere close to what somebody going out and buying the record 20 years ago would have generated. Um, I am trying to look at it as like, well, where is the value here? And how can we make the most out of it as independent artists? And more importantly, how can I make the connection with you as an audience um, to facilitate live shows? Uh, because if there's ever going to be any source of meaningful income, I believe it's going to be from the live show more than anything else. The pre-sale is amazing. It's helping me to break even on, the, on making albums. But if I really want to make music for a living, um, I think that's going to involve the, the live show. I think that's for, for me, for <clears throat> Aerosmith. I mean, I think the live show is the biggest thing for everyone. Look at like, people like Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran playing almost exclusively stadiums these days. Uh, I bet you their revenue from stadium touring every year is vastly superior to whatever 
streams they're, they're getting on Spotify, bearing in mind that they get billions with a B of streams, and that does generate millions of dollars on a catalog for those artists. But once it gets all split up, I'm sure their touring revenue is, is far more uh, is, is at the absolute top of their, of their income streams. Unless there's advertising and stuff like that and brand deals, but pretty sure in a touring year, Taylor Swift will make the most money from from touring. And I'm pretty sure for me, if I can grow that audience and make touring the way I would have to do it a reality, it would be an amazing way to always be giving back to the music. It's like the more distracted or the more necessity I have to make an income uh, that's away from writing, producing or playing music, the less I get to serve the catalog and the story and my history as an artist and the less I get to serve the conversation with you guys as an audience. So that's really on my mind right now, especially as I'm trying to, uh, trying to make two or three albums a year for the rest of my life. That's something I think is, is realistically possible and something I would like to aim towards. Like I've said briefly before, one big project where we do the pre-sale and everyone's involved and it's like a big thing, like going to Argentina and cutting this album. And then two smaller things, maybe something locally wherever I'm living or something that gets done remotely, something far more manageable for a almost non-existent budget um, just to get the music out of my head and, and recorded and out there into the world. Because if... If writing for this album has taught me nothing else, it has shown me that I can sit down every day and write, no matter what. Sometimes I really like it. Sometimes I like it in the minute. I listen the next day. I'm like, what the fuck were you thinking? And sometimes I hate it. But no matter what, it's, uh, it's shown me that, oh, yeah, remember this? Remember you used to write music all the time? You used to make records that had tunes on them and used to go play gigs that had melodic content well guess what that used to be my full-time job and I would quite like to make it my full-time job again and uh, and of course let you know how it goes along the way the the inevitable ups and downs that will come with a with a commitment like that um, so I will leave you with that thought uh, and also the go to yannickwistala.com get involved in the pre-sale it's going to be open until the album comes out and Man, I cannot wait to share some of this stuff with you from the studio. That is going to be awesome. Just having like the videos and the, and the rough mixes and stuff to, to share like, hey, look at this. And I'm sure there are going to be some things where I'm like, hey, look at this. This did not go as planned and um, we're putting this one in the trash. But I'm, for the most part, I have great confidence that it's going to be more on, hey, this was an unbelievably great experience and I can't wait to share the full, full thing with you. I think that's going to be more than narrative at least i hope it is um so that's it let's hope the microphone situation worked out today uh huge optimism for that and yeah i'll catch you guys girls of the base world maybe even from argentina let's see let's see if i can squeak out an episode while i'm down there maybe using this gear if it worked out otherwise i'll pre-record one before i leave so we don't miss one next week but either way love you guys thanks for making it this far if you did and uh catch you on the next one Thank you.